because I think I have a lot of good systems in place. I mean, what I do for my job is I, I create standards and, and try to remove inefficiencies from different pieces of the operation. So like, I just see things that can be optimized and, and try to figure out um, how do we automate, how do I automate different things? And from that, how do I help remove myself from all of the daily interactions? Welcome to the House Hacking Success Podcast, where you'll learn the path to free rent and financial freedom through real estate. Featuring your hosts, Brad Labrie and Drew Klingler. Hey, everyone. Real quick before we start the show, Brad wrote an amazing ebook that will teach you everything you need to know about house hacking and living rent free. To get a free copy, text house hack, all one word, to 22828. That's house hack, all one word, to 22828 to get your free copy. Welcome to House Hacking Success. Today we have Travis here. Travis, we're thrilled you're here. Thanks for coming on. Thank you guys for having me. Really appreciate it. Cool. Well, tell us about your early years being in e-commerce and uh, what kind of led you to the idea of house hacking. Yeah, it was kind of actually interesting how I stumbled upon it. So one of the guys uh, that I actually worked with at a facility when I started um, up in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, he uh, reached out to me and said, hey, man, you really need to look at this book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. So it's like the common story that a lot of people get started and read the book and, and was like, man, I'm wasting so much money on rent and doing all these things that like I'm just never going to see that money again. So read the book. Um, after reading the book, then I started looking and, and Google searching like, hey, how do I find out more about like what's going on and what's out there, information that I don't know? And that's when I stumbled upon bigger pockets, uh, as many people do when they start doing some research on real estate. Um, and then once I did that, I actually had to move, got a promotion in my job um, where I was able to move down to Orlando um, and start up a new building. And at that point, I knew that I was no longer going to rent. I didn't want to waste money and, and make somebody else rich, more or less. Um, so decided to to move down to Orlando, buy a house. The house process was was super strange because I'd never experienced anything or or actually bought a house and didn't know what I was looking for and, and really um, what to look for and how much I could afford. Didn't have a great real estate agent, so they didn't really help me with negotiation or, or really understanding what I could afford. So probably bought um, a house that was a little bit more expensive than what I should have bought. Um, just thinking that like, hey, well, I'm going to be building up equity and, and uh, I'm paying down the, the principal. So um, I bought the house, three bedroom, two bathroom, 2,100 square feet um, with no intention of renting out any rooms originally. Um, and then it was kind of funny how house hacking kind of stumbled upon it. So um, I was listening to the Bigger Pockets podcast, but hadn't heard or, or uh, seen anything that they started talking about house hacking yet. I was still starting from episode one and, and just continuing on um, through all the episodes that they had. And I actually had a buddy reach out to me from uh, from New York, and he was like, hey, man, um, I'm going to come down to Orlando, and I'm going to play some pro tournaments down in, in Orlando, and I need to stay there for the summer. There's like a pro tour, um, a mini tour that they have in Orlando. And he's like, I want to come down, and, and uh, do you mind if I crash at your place? And I was like, I mean, I got two extra bedrooms. I'm not using them right now. I might as well, like, whatever. And he's like, hey, what do you think is a reasonable price? I'm like, honestly, man, I don't know. Like, tell me what whatever you, you want to pay, and, and, like, we'll make it work. So we ended up agreeing that, like, 500 bucks was was a reasonable amount. And so he uh, he moved down, uh, started paying $500 a month, and I was like, holy crap, like, I'm making $500 a month. And I literally like 
out of nowhere. And the crazy thing was, too, so two weeks into him staying, he met this other guy that was on the mini pro tour. And he's like, hey, man, this guy's in the same situation I am. He wants to do this tour for a little bit longer. Do you mind if he stays in the other room? I'm like, well, shit, like, I guess like <laughs> 500 bucks more. And and so at that point, um, I just I just told them, them both 500 bucks, like whatever. I had no idea how much I could actually get for the rooms. I was just yeah. super excited, like, hey, that's a thousand bucks off my mortgage. That is right. completely gone. Now I'm I'm living for less than I was when when I was paying twelve hundred a month um, in rent up in Pennsylvania when I was living there. So um, at that point, they had stayed for a little bit. Um, I think they stayed for like five or six months. And during the courses, their stay, I started looking at like, how much could I actually rent these rooms out for? Cause I had no idea. Like I, the house was completely furnished with all my stuff. Um, I provided all the furniture in the bedrooms and everything. So, um, I started looking, I was like, man, I can get eight, $900 a month for these rooms. Like I was renting them out to them for super, super cheap, but I was starting to learn the process of like what was going on and everything. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's when like once, once my friend moved out, the other guy ended up staying, I kept his rent at 500 a month, but then I started looking at, okay, like what other things can I do? Um, and that's when I actually started Airbnb out the other room instead of doing long-term. Um, so I had like a, a unique strategy in the sense that, um, I started with the short long-term rental for eight, each individual bedroom. And then I transitioned to Airbnb. And then I actually had some of the Airbnb guests, uh, end up staying long-term. So they would, a lot of people were coming down to Orlando to look for a place. Um, and then they liked my house so much that they're like, Hey, do you mind if I stay here for a little bit longer? And, um, and was able to get those rents from between 900 and 1100 a month, depending on, uh, who was coming down and, and like what time of the year it was. So kind of crazy how it all just stumbled into place. But, uh, but yeah. Awesome, man. So uh, we actually kind of hear that often, you know, where people kind of stumble into it, you know, because it's sort of that uh, it, it's very entrepreneurial, you know, and it's not it's not very widely known. Uh, but once you sort of, you know, get that sense of like, man, like I just got like you said, like, man, I got 500 bucks off my mortgage. And then like, man, I got a thousand bucks. It's kind of addicting. And it's kind of that entrepreneurial bug uh, that leads people down that path. Now, uh, to back up just a little bit on that first house act, like, a, how did you find it? And then uh, also, how did you finance it? Like, was it, uh, you know, FHA or like, how did you uh, go about finding it and funding that? I know that you had an agent and everything. Yeah. So uh, with the move package, uh, how my company works. So if, if you get a promotion and you move over a certain distance, they give you like real estate agent and, and help you move all your stuff. Um, so I got that real estate agent and that's the, the one that I was working with to find the deal. Honestly, I was just driving around and looking um, in the market. Uh, in in Orlando to try to find a place that was close to work, but also find a place that um, I knew I was going to be buying a home that I wasn't probably I wasn't going to end up in Orlando and stay in Orlando. So I knew I had to be mobile for my job. So I wanted to buy a home in a nice area um, with good school districts. So that's the the main area that I looked for because I knew that after moving out of the home, I would want to rent it long term um, to a family more more or less. So started looking in areas that, that were safe. And, uh, there was a bunch of new construction going on and, and I was definitely open to the idea of buying a new house versus buying something that, um, that was old and probably would require more maintenance. Um, so really just drove around the area, uh, found some, some nice new homes in the area, um, and then ended up, con uh, financing the deal through three and a half percent down. Um, I actually did a three and a half percent down conventional loan. 
Um, I thought I was doing an FHA loan, but uh, again, going back to like how like my real estate agent didn't didn't really keep me in the loop. I didn't know anything at the time um, when I was buying the the house. I just knew I wanted to buy versus versus rent. So, um, so yeah, I did three and a half percent down, and then uh, and then yeah, just recently. Um, was able to, with how good the market's been been doing and everything, was able to to get rid of uh, the PMI that I was paying uh, every single month as well. Awesome, awesome. So we'll touch back with that PMI uh, a little bit later. But cool. So uh, what what was the system like using uh, Airbnb versus long term rentals? Yeah. So uh, Airbnb. It was interesting because when I was originally, a lot of people think Airbnb like you have to be like physically there all the time to be able to manage the property. And, and that's, that's true to an extent, but, um, long-term long-term is definitely easier in the sense that like you get somebody to sign a contract, they're going to stay there. You don't really have to worry about anything. Maybe they text you of like, if they have an inconvenience or something or, or the AC is out and when you come home, you fix it. Um, but Airbnb is definitely, um, it takes a lot more time, but if you set up the right systems in place, it really isn't that bad. So I have, um, with like the long-term rental or the Airbnb full-time rental, um, I set some systems in place so that a lot of the messaging is handled automatically, um, at least when like guests first inquire and things like that. And being able to actually just got a message from my guest who's checking in today. Um, so it, like Airbnb, you can set up systems to help with the messaging to and uh, and some of the, the management, but you can also help yourself by... Um, setting up the house in certain ways. Um, one of the big things that I that I found was super important early on when I was doing Airbnb, um, I I actually like would put a key under the under the mat for them to get in because I didn't know like what else could I do. But then I started to figure out, hey, there's these smart locks where you can literally buy a smart lock. So I get like bought like a Schlage, one of the keypads, smart keypads, and then I can start just giving them an access code. So now I don't have to be home when they get in to be able to get them into the house. So there's other, there's like unique things and unique ways that you can, uh, you can make your life easier to manage the the overall property um, for short term uh, that makes it more or less the, the amount, same amount of work as long-term, but also uh, is, is more profitable in, in many areas. So creating systems is so key so we appreciate those tips and you being in la right now like you said you just got a message for somebody moving in there so obviously it's a testament to the systems you have in place and your ability to now not need to physically be there uh to transact the deal and so that's awesome so going to your second deal which you bought in orlando um for strictly airbnb from what i understand like tell us about you know a lot of times there's a barrier to entry to get into a second deal right it's sort of you know, banks need more requirements. Like, how did you find it? But then also, how did you finance that one uh, on your second deal? Yeah, so so that one was a, a super interesting one. So um, for for my job, I hadn't taken any time off. And I, w- I knew I wanted to make my next move for real estate. And I knew that, um, like, I didn't, I wanted to get at least one more deal for the end of this year. So I ended up taking a full week off uh, around my, my birthday. And I was like, I don't care what I do. Like I am going to wake up at 3 a.m. every single morning and just look for homes and try to figure out like what area of the market that I want to be in, knowing that I was going to do a, a Airbnb for for the rental. So I, I took a week off of work and like all day, every day for a week, I was just searching 
uh, homes, areas, like cost per night, vacancy rates, um, just overall utilities costs, HOAs, all those things. Uh, until I was able, I found 10 different properties um, that I was super interested in. I found a real estate agent um, and then uh, from there just started putting contracts out on homes. Um, of the 10 different homes that I put out a and made an official offer on, three came back um, and then started the negotiation pro- process from there uh, and actually ended up closing the deal uh, on the one that I got when I, I was in a I was at a wedding in Dallas. Uh, getting the text back from my real estate agent going back and forth like oh they're they're coming back and saying this and uh and it was super interesting too uh like seven days from from the start of the week to the end of the week i had the deal closed uh or on paper closed there's a lot more that that actually ended up going into it but um it was it was super exciting to get that from a financing standpoint um did 20 percent down uh conventional um, it was interesting though. One of the, uh, I learned a lot of things through the process of the second one as buying a home for, uh, for an investment property versus, uh, having the home for, for house hacking. Um, one of the, one of the big things for that I didn't realize in the first house is interest rates and how interest rates are, are never locked and they're always changing. And also how, like, so I, I found a, I found somebody to finance, and I originally found somebody at 5.75% 30-year conventional. And uh, and I was like, okay, well, I've already talked to them, so I must be locked in because they like they gave me the rate and everything. And I started talking to somebody on it, – it, it was funny. I started talking to somebody on Instagram that um, does a lot of uh, investing and whatnot. And he's like, dude, you're not locked in yet. Like, you can get so much better than that. He's like, go on. And start looking for and like literally just shop around. And what what was crazy to find was like the lenders that were never locked in. The second you told them, hey, I got a better rate somewhere else, they immediately dropped their rate. Like it was like literally just like immediately dropped their rate. And a lot of people don't understand that like rates are never locked in. Like lenders, lenders will tell you that they're locked in, but like the reality is they have so much more room to really, really play with. And like for for them, I'm the dream person to lend to because I don't have any bad debt um, from credit cards, student loans, car loans, anything like that. And I'm bringing an income on my house hack to where I don't I don't have any living expenses. Um, and I also uh, I try to like hack a bunch of different parts of my life, but I also travel for work. So another big piece of uh, my overall living expenses being food don't really exist because Monday to Friday I'm typically traveling. So I don't have to worry about food or anything like that. So um, from overall expenses, my debt to income ratio um, looks really, really good for, for what lenders look for. So um, it was super easy to, to take uh, and leverage different offers from lenders to, to negotiate that uh, interest rate down. So that was a conventional, the second one? Yep. Yeah. 20% down conventional one. Okay, so back it up just real quick. Uh, you talk, I've never heard anyone talk about this, uh, which is kind of intriguing. Uh, vacancy rates with Airbnb, they can be very challenging to, um, you know, sort of get your pulse on it, right? Where vacancy rates maybe in, you know, in the long-term game uh, in multifamilies can be a little bit easier to pinpoint. How did you come up with that rate? Did you just ask people? Is there a site? How did you come up with a vacancy rate for Airbnb? Yeah, so there's a couple of different sites. Um, the one that I specifically use to help 
now I would say like these sites are are fairly accurate, but you still have to go and dig and, and do more yeah. research on your own. Um, but the site that I use is called MashVisor. Um, so MashVisor is essentially there's so MashVisor and AirDNA. Those are the two that are most commonly used for Airbnb. They also have MashVisor also has uh, it, it also looks at long term vacancy rates, too, in different areas. But you can essentially take a so like you can take Orlando. And you can plug in Orlando and then it'll show you a map and then you can toggle between cash on cash return for long-term investing, uh, long-term rentals, cash on cash return for Airbnbs. So you can do all these different toggles and it'll essentially take the map and it'll green, yellow, red, like the the good and bad areas. So it'll, it'll literally the entire map and you can zoom in, zoom out to different areas, but you can start to really toggle between cash on cash return, vacancy rate, rental income, and you can just take a big snapshot, look at where all the green, yellow, red is, and then where you see the most green when you toggle, you can start zooming into those areas and really start to pinpoint areas that make the most sense. Um, and, and so I did that for vacancy rate, rental income, and cash on cash return for Airbnb. Found two different areas within Orlando that I really, really liked. Um, and then from there, uh, essentially took the information of their vacancy rates and then went to Airbnb and started searching people's uh, like in that area. And what I would do is I'd click into listings and I would look at their calendar. So I wouldn't like when I go into a listing, I'm not I'm not like clicking specific dates. I want to see every single date on their calendar that's open so that I can see like, OK, in the month of November, like they have they still have we're three months out and they have. 10 days still unbooked or in December, like we're four months out and they have 15 days unbooked. I can see all that information and then leverage that information to start understanding what vacancy rates are um, at different price points. Because vacancy rates um, are gonna differ based off different price points and what your property is. So if you're if you're a higher end property, um, there's a there's a chance that you're gonna have a higher vacancy rate. Um, unless you bring the price a little bit down. And if you bring the price down, you'll start to see your vacancy rate go up. So there's a there's a pretty direct correlation um, between your vacancy rates and uh, and what your price point that you're trying to get people to come in at. Awesome. Awesome. Cool. So uh, you just removed PMI from your property, uh, yep. which is which is, you know, pretty easy process. But a lot of people don't know about it. Uh, talk about how you were able to do that. Yeah, so uh, so that was a, a really interesting one. At first, I I actually and, forgot. And, and I was, also, real quick, before we get too far into a lot of people might not even know what PMI is. So talk a little bit to that, and then how you remove it. Yeah, so PMI uh, is a mortgage insurance that you pay on anything that uh, you put less than twenty percent down on a on a down payment for a house. So um, essentially. I, I actually forgot I was paying PMI in my payment. So like, I, I didn't, I, I actually, it, they do a good job. Your lenders do a really good job of kind of not even letting you know that that's part of the payment if you're paying it. Um, Cause if you look at your, your uh, balance sheet, it's, it's not on there, but essentially um, I, I somehow remember that I was paying PMI and I called my lender and I said, Hey, like I'm wasting $97 a month. Like that's just gone. Like, how do I get rid of this? And they essentially, they like these places have a PMI department. So they transfer you to the PMI department. And I started talking to the PMI people and they're like, okay, let's look at your, like, let's bring your balance up and see. So I had 260,000 still left on principal on my house and I bought it for 292. So they were like, there's, there's one of two things that 
you can do to get rid of PMI. Um, the first thing that you can do is you have to have a 20% uh, loan, to, like you have to own 20% of your house. So um, at 300000 if it was a $300,000 house, you would have to own 60 or your principal payment left would have to be at 240000 So like that would mean that you own 20% of the house. And then at that point, they would automatically, by law, they're supposed to automatically take it off. Like if they don't, you should call them and, and they need to take it off. The other way that you can get rid of PMI is by uh, a loan to value of 78%. So essentially what that means um, is that if uh, let's just say a $100,000 house, like I would have to own, uh, my principal payment would have to be 78,000 in order for me to get rid of PMI. So um, in my in my situation, because I put three and a half percent down, um, I wasn't gonna. I, I would have to come to the table with a lot of cash to be able to get to the twenty percent uh, that I would need for them to automatically remove. So the the next best thing was to say, okay, let's have somebody come out and appraise the home. So if I were to go on the second approach for the loan to value of seventy eight percent, somebody would need to come appraise the home, and I would my house would need to be appraised at three hundred. It's like three hundred forty five thousand dollars based off the principal that I had left in order to have the 78% um, loan to value. So somebody came to the house. I actually made some upgrades in the house as well. Um, it was 2,100 square feet. I added an additional bedroom um, by like getting a GC to come out and putting up a, uh, what are we just framing a door um, and, and putting a, a new room in there. So I had another bedroom. I fenced in the backyard. Um, the home, uh, the home values were going up across the, all of Orlando. So it was able to appraise for over that $345,000. And then at that point they automatically removed the PMI. So now, uh, that $97 a month that I was essentially wasting is now gone. Yeah, that's amazing. Cool. And, and not a whole lot of people realize that there are two ways, you know, either you can pay down, which takes a lot of cash, but if yep. you're, but if you force appreciate, you know, you add some value or. Maybe the property values like yours were were skyrocketing so much. All you need it to go up is twenty two percent, right? So yep. it's either pay down or if the property appreciates, you just have to get to seventy eight percent LTV, like you said, which you have twenty two percent equity. Uh, and a lot of times you could just talk to your agent and say, "Hey, can you give me some comps? They'll give you some local comps again of, of prices that sold. Maybe you can keep an eye out as well, uh, and you can get a pretty good idea of where that is." And another thing that people don't realize is you can challenge the appraisal, right? Yes. I. I is this happens all the time with client. I'm an agent. Uh, so I, I help this out with clients a lot is like when we're buying, you know, uh, appraisers are very, very, they're, they're just really lazy. And so really yep. like if you give them a purchase price, they're going to essentially go like five or six grand over the purchase price and get you through with the loan. Right. That's just kind of like par for the course. Well, me as an agent, you know, running cops, I'm like, there's no way, like, this is why this is it. Like that square footage is, you know, that price of square foot is way off. So anyways, you can challenge them and actually get them to increase it long story short uh, to get you that PMI off, which a lot of people Absolutely. don't realize. Absolutely. It, it's it's uh, interesting, the the challenge of appraisal. So my my uncle's a real estate agent in, in Phoenix, and the challenge of appraisal is actually um, a way that I got 5K off my second property. So um, part of the negotiation, the appraisal came in super low compared to like... The, the home's value was around 220, but the appraisal came in at 196. But so I so I called my uncle and figure out like what was going on and, and like what I could do. But I ended up not challenging the appraisal on purpose because I wanted to go to the seller 
and yeah. say, hey, here's what the appraisal came in at. I want you to lower the price. And they actually lowered the price $5,000 just from the appraisal. When I knew the appraisal was ridiculous, like based yeah. off of all the comps in the area. And like you were saying, the appraisers nowadays are just are just lazy and they're they're just going to like they're going to look at like base comps and, and not really like actually understand different features of the home. Um, so I actually purposefully didn't challenge an appraisal so that on the second property so that I can get the seller to, to drop the price even more. Now, I had to come to the table with more cash because of the appraisal amount because I didn't yeah. challenge it. Um, but it, it like it ended up working in the end. Yeah. And then when you go back now that you own the property, now you can go back, get a cut, you know, get you and your agent or whatever, come together with a, a definitive CMA presented to an appraiser. Say, listen, like it's not 196. It's this. And you challenge that. If they don't go, you can actually go through the procedure of getting it reversed outside of that particular appraisal to bring in the second party. You know, there's a whole uh, bullet point. But, yeah, you can absolutely change it. And that's a great way. Like your point is you didn't want to challenge it when you're buying but now that you own it, you know that you can get that appraisal up. Yep. Good point. Absolutely. Cool. So you went to 200000 in net worth in about 400 days. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that and how you developed seven income streams? Yeah. So uh, so that really started happening once I found the whole FI community and, and Bigger Pockets. And I, I started like heavily listening to all the Bigger Pockets podcasts. And they start to bring on all these different people outside of the technical real estate realm. Um, so I started to find like Choose FI, Mad Scientist, uh, Mr. Money Mustache, like all the the really big names within the FI community. Um, and and I realized that like I had all this money like sitting in my bank account, like literally doing nothing, earning 0.01%. Bank of America was like just screwing me over. And like I realized that like, hey, I need this money invested. Like this money is literally sitting in a bank account doing absolutely nothing. Like I need to start investing this money. So on top of uh, transitioning all of my all of my money into uh, index funds and and a few other income streams, um, I also really started to take a look at the income that I was that I was creating from my W two and saying, okay, well now I'm house hacking which is saving all my expenses, my living expenses. So I don't have a rent or anything. Everything was being dumped into investments every single month. Um, and also over the course of, of three or four years, I was able to 5X my W2. So that in combination with like, hey, I, I, I'm a very I'm very much a minimalist. I'm not going to spend on, I don't drive a nice car. I house hacks. So I, like, I could live on my own, but, but and then I also travel for work. Um, so all of my living expenses during the week and food and everything is, is all taken care of. So all of those things compounded on top of each other really helped me to like aggressively save and invest almost everything. So now I try to keep my bank account extremely low to where I'm like, all I'm living paycheck to paycheck, even though I'm not living page, like I could, I could yeah. easily like keep more money in there, but I want to feel like I'm living paycheck to paycheck. Um, because it, it really helps me to invest aggressively um, and, and invest all that excess income that I have coming in. And that's a great way to, to think about it, you know, because, um, you know, that forces yourself, right? It puts yourself, it put pressure on yourself uh, because, you know, the next thing we're going to talk about is how you have a ridiculous 80% savings rate. No one has 80% savings rate, but uh, Drew and I have similar, right? And it's like you talked about things that most people don't talk about, which is, you know, driving cash cars or, you know, where you don't have a, a car payment because, I mean, that takes up so much of, 
uh, the income. Basically, the average U.S. American is over 50 percent between housing expense and, and auto loans, you know, yep. auto, auto financing. I mean, that's 50 percent right there. So if you eliminate like you did those two things, I mean, you're already at 50 percent savings rate. Then if you just do the normal uh, 20 versus 15 or 20 percent, which most people, you know, like Dave Ramsey and stuff would, would suggest to invest. I mean, there's 65, 70 percent. Right. So like just doing those two things, which uh, for, you know, Scott Trench's book, Set for Life, is one yep. of my favorites. And that was That's the paradigm shift for me between like variable expenses, which is, you know, Tim Hortons and Starbucks, right? Like yep. coffee um, versus, you know, which is just a few hundred dollars a year versus the 50 percent, you know, of your fixed incomes, you know, or fixed expenses like car and house. Right. It was a huge paradigm. Uh, so talk a little bit about that 80 percent. Like no one our age has 80 percent savings rate. Like how did you get there? Like uh, we, we talked a little bit already, but talk to that. Yeah, the it's funny you say set for life because that's a, a big book that that I read too from Scott Trench that really helped um, understand like what are the big expenses because the reality is like and I don't know how much you guys know about like the eighty twenty rule but like the Pareto's eighty twenty rule says that like typically twenty twenty percent of your expenses are going to account for eighty percent of the total amount of your expenses so like. The top three expenses being housing, transportation, and food, typically, or food entertainment combined, however you want to separate those out. Like, if you can figure out ways to hack those, then everything else becomes so much easier. So, house hacking, eliminating the house expense, making money from from the house, like making a couple hundred bucks a, a month is a significant help. Increasing the W-2 income um, also, also definitely helps. Um, and then going through and, and having the job that I have where I travel um, pretty much all the time, Monday to Friday. So like my my company is paying for my food during the week. It's it, it is super easy, though, when you have a job where you travel a lot to spend a lot of money of, of your money while you're traveling, because it's, it's super easy to like, hey, I want to grab a beer every single night or I want a glass of wine or whatever, where like my company is not paying for alcohol. So like it, it's super easy where that stuff will start to add up if, if like you like to do that. But because like when I go out, like I'm just going to grab something and, and drink water or soda or whatever, um, like all those all those small things will add up. But if you eliminate a lot of the stuff that you just don't care about um, or and like just don't bring you any happiness, then you can really start to aggressively invest that money. And that's really what's helped me um, to get to that 80 percent savings rate. Um, th there's, uh, there's some months that the one thing I'll, the one caveat I'll say on that, that I think people need to be careful about with savings rate is you can, you can overdo it. So like some people will, some people will overdo it where all of a sudden they just won't have any happiness in life. Like they're, they're so stuck on like hitting a number that like they eliminate things that actually bring them happiness. Like for me, two of the things that bring that, like I, I enjoy are like, I love golfing. And I like, like, I like the morning Starbucks coffee. Like those are the two things that I enjoy. Like those aren't things that I'm going to eliminate out of my life. Um, but like, don't overdo, try to overdo your savings rate just to hit a number and, and eliminate some of the things that make you happy in life. Cause like you, you got to find the right balance of both. Um, and, and I will say like, there was, there was months where I would overdo it, where I was like, I didn't go out and then do the things that I enjoy. Um, and I've really started to the last four or five months, I've really started to reel that in um, and make sure that like, Hey, if I don't hit 80%, it's not a big deal. It's not, it's not the end of the world. Like it's still like, I'm saving a lot of money and I'm investing it. Um, but like, don't get overly caught up in trying to hit a specific number. 
And that, that's why for me personally, uh, that book, Set for Life, was like a saving grace for me. Um, yeah. Because, you know, I used to, I grew up on, on sort of a, uh, from a family that, you know, I grew up on a farm. So we were very um, conservative when it came to money. And, you know, like you just, you save money. They, you know, my, my parents taught me the value of a dollar, you know. And so yeah. it was very difficult for me to go get a coffee. You know, I just, I beat myself up a little bit. And so just that book, the paradigm shift of realizing that it's only a couple hundred bucks and not, not that you shouldn't be conscious of it, but yep. the fact that, you know, car vehicle and housing expense exponentially, you know, um, reduces your, you know, increases your savings rate versus coffee. Now, you know, I can enjoy a coffee, uh, yep. and you know, and, but I, you know, I, I counteract that with my housing and my car expense. So, uh, you're absolutely right because you can overdo it. Absolutely. Cool. So you became a prominent member of the fire community. Uh, could you tell us why and why you don't necessarily agree with some of the stuff? Yeah, I think uh, I think the fire movement is is super important to um, that. It's it's somewhat caught mainstream. It's starting to get more and more traction. It seems like every single month as more people are writing about it and talking about it. And there's more people in the news that are that are being interviewed on on Good Morning America and, and things like that. Um there, I think fire is, and for people that don't know, fire, uh, fire stands for financial independence, retire early. Um, so I think it's a good, it's a good goal to get to financially, to being financially independent. But I would say like my overarching goal is to never retire. Like, even though, um, it like the movement is, is guiding people in the right direction. I think the end goal shouldn't be retirement. Because at the end of the day, like you can only sit on the beach and drink pina coladas for so long. Like it, that gets old after a while. Like traveling, yeah, it's fun. Like it, it would be fun a couple months a year and like go see all these cool places. Um, but it can only it it can only last for so long and do it for a couple of years. So I think that like being financially independent is super important. I think that um, it's the least talked about thing, and and most people are just stuck in that like, hey, I'm I'm gonna work nine to five. I'm going to retire when I'm 65. I'm going to have like money in my 401k. Hopefully like it, it's important to like take control of your financial independence at a young age, because if you do it at a young age, I mean, every, everybody understands exponential growth. Like if you look at charts, if you start at young, like you're going to be exponentially further, even when you're 30, 35, 40 years old, then all your friends that like, Oh, I'll, I'll wait to invest in my 401k or I'll wait to invest in, in the stock market or, or real estate or whatever you're doing. Um, so I think it's super, super important to start early, but I just think the end goal shouldn't be, um, retirement. The end goal should be like, you still need to have your passions that, that you do. You don't necessarily have to, to work for money. Like you can work for free once you're financially independent and all of your income streams are paying for, for your life. At that point, you like you can really start to do some of the passions that that you uh, you really enjoy for for not not thinking about money at all because at that point you're set. That's great advice. I mean, you don't necessarily have to retire early, but if you are financially independent, you could leave a job that you don't like and pursue more meaningful work. Exactly. And I like the way that Chad Carson from Bigger Pocket puts this the best is that the fact that like we should redefine retirement a. But then yep. B, like you said, it's about doing what matters most. Like that's his that's his motto is do what matters most when you get to that point. Uh, and, you know, he talks a lot to the fact that he works more now than he ever did when he, you know, quote unquote, like worked in the business. Um, and it's more on things that he's super passionate about. Right. Like right now, 
uh, in Clemson, South Carolina, where he lives, he's fighting for a bike path uh, to better the community. And he spends a lot of time. He talks a lot about spending a lot of time doing that. Uh, and there are a lot of people in the fire community that, that speak to that. And so I absolutely agree with you that, you know, retirement, like in its traditional form, is not really something that appeals to me. I'm, I'm a, you know, I don't really like sitting on my hands very often, you know, but but redefining it and turning into doing what matters most to you. I think, you know, that's what the true end goal should be for the fire movement. I, I absolutely agree with you. Yeah. So, so, so speaking of that, uh, what are your long term goals in fire and then also in real estate as well? Yeah, so uh, I have pretty lofty goals. Um, so I want to get to it, between real estate and other investment vehicles. I want to get to generating forty thousand a month in income. Um, so like that's my that's my stretch goal. So um, pretty lofty, but um, if if you don't if you don't go big, then there's no point in uh, in having a goal. Um, so like I I have a goal of trying to add three or four more properties next year. I'd love to do one more house hack, uh, another house hack next year as well. Uh, and then maybe two or three um, additional Airbnb properties. I also want to to try to expand and grow um, like, like as a host. So I would love to, to start hosting for others on Airbnb because um, I have a lot of really good systems in place. Um, and I, I really enjoy being able to create the experience for the guests. I think it's super, super important that um, like it, when I'm hosting for my guests in Orlando, like I know that those families are coming for Disney World. Most of the families that are coming in town are coming for Disney World. And I know that like I shape a big part of their experience coming to Orlando. Part of it's the parks, but another big part of it is, is shaping that experience on where they're staying at, providing a great guest experience. So I really, really enjoy and, and take pride in, in a lot of that. So I, I love to continue to um, expand the amount of properties that I have in the area, as well as um, looking at co-hosting for others and, and taking over that management uh, that management piece. Because I think I have a lot of good systems in place. I mean, what I do for my job is I, I create standards and, and try to remove inefficiencies from different pieces of the operation. So like I just see things that can be optimized and, and try to figure out um, how do we automate, how do I automate different things? And from that, how do I help remove myself from all of the daily interactions so I can set up systems where um, a lot of things are automatically taken care of and I only need to step in when when something happens or something something goes wrong. So I'd love to continue to expand uh, my real estate portfolio, one more house hack next year, um, and then look to, to start co-hosting for, for others. And people don't really talk to that. You know, we talk about property management companies, right, which is kind of more of the traditional sense. Uh, you know, maybe large multifamilies or or just, you know, even families, right? There are people that have property management with it. But there's also sort of a pro, uh, property management segment in Airbnb, right? And it's something that maybe is underutilized uh, because there are a lot of opportunities within that industry, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. So super cool. Awesome. So we like to read a lot. We always ask our guests what their favorite books are. Uh what is your favorite mindset or business book? Yeah, so I have I have a lot. Uh, I actually hated reading <laughs> uh, coming out of school, but um, once I read Rich Dad Poor Dad and realized all the all the different knowledge that's out there, um, I started to read a ton. Um, a couple of the the big books that I've been reading and continue to to go back and read. Um, I don't know if you guys have heard of Outwitting the Devil by Napoleon Hill. Um, super, super interesting book. Uh, 
it's a so it's napoleon hill was alive in like early 1900s and this book wasn't like this manuscript or whatever wasn't found until i think it's the last 10 or 20 years um but essentially it's it's napoleon hill having a conversation like a literally it's like a ask question with the devil and he's like trying to like understand like his thought process and um it talks a lot about um like the devil talks a lot about drifting and and how he tries to get people to drift where if you look at like the day and age that we live in and like how prominent technology is and like everybody's always on their phone and everybody's always like they come home and like they go watch Netflix or they like they turn on the TV immediately when they sit down like people are are more or less in this constant cycle of like they don't go out and do things like they don't like they're not trying to like learn create invest create different income streams doing these different things it's so much easier to come home from your nine to five sit on the couch and turn on the TV and just kind of drift like what what they reference as drifting so I think it, that's a really really interesting book if you haven't heard of it or read it um, definitely recommend another uh, another one. I don't know if you guys have heard of Ryan Holiday, but he just came out with a new book um, called Stillness is Key. Um, it's a super interesting book, and it also talks about just how people are like people really struggle nowadays just being silent and like removing all technology and just like being with themselves and like understanding um, what they're thinking. Well, like what goes on through their mind. Um, I've been getting into like, uh, doing some meditation and, and like journaling and that kind of stuff. And he talks about how important doing those different things are to really understand and be introspective to yourself and, um, and try to understand how you're thinking, why you're thinking that, um, and how that's impacting the, the different things in your life. So that's also a really, really good book, uh, part of like the stoic philosophy and, and those things, but um, that a couple other ones, Miracle Morning. I don't know if you guys have heard of Hal Elrod. Uh, mm-hmm. Love that book. Yeah. Uh, that was probably the biggest shift in it for me uh, three years ago when I found Hal. Um, I've actually posted a couple things about uh, about Hal, and he's actually liked them on Instagram, which is, was awesome. I was like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's that's another good one. And then Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins. I don't know if you guys have heard of David Goggins, but that yeah. guy's like yeah. a complete animal uh and his mindset is is like the craziest mindset that that i've ever seen i think he's a little extreme people would say but uh but it that's also a, a really really interesting book and and he kind of makes you feel smaller every time you either hear him or, or listen to him right i mean that dude, <laughs> oh yeah that dude's a tank oh yeah absolutely so uh speaking of that like what are your favorite uh, real estate specific books maybe books on either airbnb or just real estate in general yeah, so the two of the big books that I read starting out um, early on after reading Rich Dad Poor Dad were the ABCs of Real Estate Investing. Uh, really enjoyed that one from like understanding the basics, um, and then the Millionaire Real Real Estate Investor. Those are two of the big real estate books early on um, that I've read, uh, and really started to to get a good base knowledge and understanding of the real estate world. Um, I will say, like I've listened to all the Bigger Pockets podcasts, like that's. I, reading, I, I went from reading the the introduction um, real estate books to listening to most of the the bigger pockets podcasts to really start to develop my knowledge um, and further understanding of of what's going on out there. Absolutely, that's awesome. Cool. So, um, what's the one thing that would separate potential house hackers from people that are actually doing it? Yeah, I mean the the biggest thing to me is action. 
that I mean, a lot of people, a lot of people talk and have the analysis paralysis, but like a, a lot of people are afraid to take action. Like if, if you run the numbers, if, if it makes sense, if you like the area, like you got to take action. Um, and that's one of the biggest things that people, people get nervous. Like I, I'll, I'll admit like that week when I was looking for that second property, like I was super nervous that like, I don't know if this is the right thing to do. Like I like take action, run the numbers, spend the time, but like actually go do it. Like stop like sitting, I, I'm a spreadsheet guy and like run the numbers, run the numbers. Like, does it make sense? Like what if it doesn't work out? Like at some point you got to take action and you got to take calculated risk. And if you do that enough, you'll start to learn and you'll start to evolve and, and figure out, okay, this is, this is what I did. Well, this is the, these are the mistakes that I made. So the next time you do it, now you have that, that additional knowledge gap that you had on the previous deal or whatever, that now you're not going to make those mistakes again. So if you continue to do that, um, the only way you're going to learn is by taking action. So I think that's the, that's the biggest thing that is the gap between people that are doing it. Um, and people that are just kind of thinking about doing it. Absolutely. And we, we talked to Craig Kerlop, who wrote the house hacking strategy for Bigger Pockets. So we talked about Bigger Pockets a little bit. And like the biggest thing that a lot of house hackers don't really understand, I feel like, uh, is the fact that the big ROI of being a house hacker is the 30% you remove from the standard American budget, which is rent yeah. or mortgage, right? Like that's the big ROI, which is the difference where if you're an investor, like your second property, there's strictly investment. Like you're expecting an immediate ROI, you know, return on investment uh, by cash flow and, and yep. other ways, right? Maybe appreciation or whatever uh, your market demands. But as a house hacker, like you can take a lot of things can go wrong, right? You can have things go wrong with the property. Um, maybe you have a month where you don't have a tenant in there. But those are really small, minor details compared to how much you save over the course of the year from a mortgage and rent, right? From a traditional uh, American budget. And so like the big ROI is that savings rate, the 30%. And then, you know, from there, if you can actually cash flow on top of that, I mean, that's just gravy, right? Yeah. Uh, you don't need that ROI like most investors do. Uh, and most people don't really realize that. And that, that's how, you know, just to further your point of action, like that's the big action point. You know, the numbers do have to make sense and there's a there's a time yeah. for that. But really, I mean, as long as you can break even, you know, and where you're living for free or you can come close like you did, you know, you were like two or $300, I think, on your first property when you had $1,000 in rent, right? Like, I mean, that's that's a huge win. Right. Yeah. And people just need to understand that. I feel like. Absolutely. hundred percent agree. Cool. So uh, you're, you're real big on the online space I mean, you have a lot of great content. Where can people reach out and learn more about your journey and, and maybe just contact you and start to learn more about uh, what you're doing and, and trying to increase their savings rate as well. Yeah. The, the best way to contact me right now is on Instagram. Uh, so Instagram handle is the young retiree by 33 um so if you reach me out there that's definitely the best spot to to reach out um and and i anybody that reaches out i i try to respond to within a couple hours uh if i'm away so um love love interacting and and meeting new people that are either asking questions or like crushing the game and and i love learning from all the different members of the community that are out there so that's the best spot to to reach me at i also have a blog the young retiree by 33.com so that's where i'm posting a lot of content haven't put a lot out there this month uh, just because it's craziest time of the year for, for work. I've uh, been super busy, but uh, we'll start putting uh, a lot more content um, coming up here in the next couple of weeks. Awesome, Travis. Well, we uh, we really appreciate you coming on. We learned a lot. Uh, your story is awesome. And and you're doing it in, in a unique market, which is Orlando, you know, which is which is a very tourist town. And and so it, your story is super cool. 
and we look forward to growing with you and, and having you back on at some point. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. Really appreciate you having me on.